Good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very, very much for joining us here at the Hoover Institution uh, for a very special uh, unveiling, if you will, of the Stanford Emerging Technology Review. Uh, this is a campus-wide effort. Oh, by the way, I'm Condoleezza Rice. I'm the director of the Hoover Institution. Sorry, just wasn't in the witness pro um, protection program there, just to make sure you know. But um, this is really a very special moment here at Hoover where we are concerned with issues of policy. Um, as our founder, Herbert Hoover said, uh, trying to improve the human condition. And we try to do it with data-based, uh, evidentiary-based research that addresses some of the hardest policy problems uh, that we face in our country and in the world. Uh, there is no more challenging set of circumstances and set of issues these days than how to think about the transformative technologies that are all around us, that are changing the way we live, that are changing everything about us, that are even challenging perhaps what it means to be human. And uh, we at Hoover uh, want to understand better the policy implications of these transformative technologies and to be able to communicate to policymakers their obligation both to uh, be concerned about the impact on institutions, but also to be concerned that we continue to innovate, continue to push forward. Stanford has stood through its entire history for that ability to innovate in a circumstance of, of, of academic freedom. Our partner in this, who you'll meet a little bit later, is the School of Engineering and its Dean, Jennifer Widom. Uh, you see, here at Hoover, we actually don't do the technology. We just talk about it. So what we did was to enlist people who actually do the technology, people who are at the front lines and the front uh, door of uh, artificial intelligence and nano and material sciences and space and synthetic biology. And you'll hear from a couple of those people today as well. And so this has been a wonderful partnership uh, between uh, the Hoover Institution, the School of Engineering. I should mention that the Dean of Medicine, Lloyd Minor, is also a member of our advisory committee. And so this is a university-wide effort. And uh, just to show you that it's a university-wide effort, we have asked, uh, and he has agreed, uh, the president of the university, President Richard Sala, to uh, come and to do a little introduction for us. Uh, he is an academic leader and classical scholar, and he serves as Stanford's 12th president. Dr. Saller is a scholar of Roman history who has previously served in several academic roles, including the Dean of Humanities and Sciences here at Stanford and as provost of the University of Chicago. Uh, prior to becoming president, Dr. Saller served as chair of the Stanford Classics Department. He's a dedicated teacher, He's published widely, he's a terrific scholar, and perhaps most importantly, he is totally dedicated to excellence here at Stanford, to excellence in research, excellence in teaching, excellence in clinical care. He is dedicated to the proposition that only through free speech and academic freedom can we truly search for the truth, which is after all the trust that we all hold when we become a part 
of a great academic institution like this. And so thank you very much, President Sala, for joining us. And if you would join me here now at the podium. Thank you. Thank you, Condi. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you this afternoon. Um, Stanford, I really do think, is uniquely qualified for this kind of project. The Stanford Emerging Technology Review is launching at a critical moment. Uh, it's to state the obvious to say that this is a time of very rapid technological change and accelerating technological change. When I arrived at Stanford 16 years ago, uh, a cover of Stanford Magazine said, innovate incessantly. Um, and I thought at the time a better, uh, uh, a better statement would have been innovate thoughtfully. Um, and so this is the project that the Hoover Institution can contribute to in partnership with the university. It's crucial that we focus on navigating both the opportunities and understanding the risks of the new technology. So CEDAR was born from a desire to connect government officials with Stanford expertise in emerging tech. The development of effective tech policy requires a multidisciplinary approach. CEDAR draws on cutting edge research coming out of Stanford labs, our technical uh, uh, expertise, as well as the university's strengths across the social sciences, in ethics, and in public policy to help inform discussions. CEDAR represents a remarkable collaboration across the university. In addition to the Hoover Institution, five of the seven schools at Stanford are represented in CEDAR, and 11 of 15 independent institutes are also represented. This multidisciplinary approach reflects both Stanford's tradition of technological innovation from our home in the heart of Silicon Valley, as well as our long history of public service. Stanford's tradition of government service dates back to the earliest days of the university. Stanford faculty and alumni have served on the Supreme Court, in Congress, and have led executive branch agencies. They've been ambassadors, cabinet members, and world leaders working on issues from financial crises to geopolitics, from climate change to global diseases. I see this project as another entry in that tradition. Uh, and in fact, two former cabinet members uh, are involved in CEDAR. Uh, Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State, and Stephen Chu, former Secretary of Energy. So this is a project that is uniquely suited to being held at Hoover and Stanford University. And with that, I will turn it over now to uh, Professor Amy Ziegart, the Morris Arnold and Nona Jean Cox Senior Fellow at, Har at Hoover and, uh, uh, and Co-Chair of CEDAR and Dean Jennifer Whittem of the Engineering School. Condi made sure that I did not go to Harvard, so I'm glad, Richard, that you made that clear. Jennifer, Amy, it's wonderful to see you. It's wonderful to have all of you here. What I thought we would do is start at the beginning and the aha moment that led to the launch of the Emerging Tech Review. 
So you know this story well, but for the rest of us, Senator Mark Warner, one of the leading tech experts in the Senate, and to be sure there aren't many, but he is one, came to Stanford. And he said, I wanna know what you're thinking and doing in emerging technology. And we got our forces together and put together a day for him. And it was amazing. And it was nowhere near enough. And we realized we needed to do more. And you gave two things that were crucial in your early championing and leadership of this effort, your time and food. So share with everyone why you decided to lead this effort and talk a little bit about the box lunch approach that you initiated. Sure. So the, the time and the food and one more thing, our amazing faculty. And that was really what it was about. So Amy approached me and said, are engineering faculty at all interested in policy, for example, or impact on society? And I said, absolutely. And you suggested that maybe they'd like to get together with people who make that their living, essentially, um, on the other side of campus. And so I just invited select faculty that I knew had a particular interest in the impact of their work, the policy implications of the work. They were doing work that can be uh, confusing and almost scary sometimes, and they want people to understand it. So I invited we had two lunches, I believe, with about a dozen faculty each. And it was just a great dialogue to hear from these engineering faculty who are usually very heads down worrying about their labs and their research to open up and talk about the broader implications of the work and how they could help uh, others understand those implications because they felt that it was important to bring those, that understanding to policymakers. So in the social science world, we hear a lot about emerging technology. What in your mind is different about the Stanford Emerging Technology Review? So the review itself, I think, is fairly unique in its focus on academia, its focus on harnessing the knowledge that we have here at Stanford in these areas. We have been at the forefront of many of the emerging technologies that are in the review. And these are technologies that are really critical at this moment in time, and some of them really scary at this moment in time. And Stanford has a long history of working in emerging technologies. So it seemed like a natural fit if we want to bring these technologies to policymakers to tap our faculty who are working in these areas. And I do want to say our faculty have been very receptive. And I, I think that's really quite important. Starting with the food and time, they were quite receptive to talking with others, with bringing their knowledge to others, and with also not just themselves, but they brought in their graduate students, their postdocs, they brought their whole ecosystem into this project. And I think that's really made a big difference. So we talked a little bit before we came out, 75 different faculty have in one way or another participated in this effort, 20 postdocs, more than a dozen undergraduates. So let me ask you about academia. So we hear a lot, particularly in the past few weeks about AI and public-private partnerships. But there's also this role of academia. What is the unique role that academia plays in the innovation ecosystem? And what are the unique challenges that you see from your vantage point as Dean of Engineering? 
Well, so the unique role, I think the most important aspect of the academic innovation is that it's not market driven. It's it's curiosity driven. So our faculty work on problems that they think are interesting, are challenging, are important, and they're not driven by a need to make a profit, which work in industry is. They are also generally impartial. So it's not like a news report that our faculty are bringing to the technology review, their impartial explanations of the technology, where it is now and where it's going in the future. So that's um, the academic perspective and always has been. Some of the challenges of academia can be when you do wanna bridge to that market, Sometimes that can be challenging. In AI in particular, there's a need for massive amounts of computation that companies have that we don't have. And that's something that we're discussing a lot about how we are going to innovate maybe differently from where the companies are going. But we also, again, are motivated by different things. So our faculty are motivated in the AI area, for example, in solving problems and sustainability in advancing human health, curing disease, things that companies might not be aiming for uh, the way we are. So I wanna ask you about building community because we talked about it from the beginning that we wanted to have a product and a process. The product is a series of educational uh, deliverables. So you all have a copy of our first report, our mini report in your chairs and other things that are gonna follow on which we'll talk about in a minute. But the process, was important too, this community building part at Stanford. And so how do you see this initiative uh, facilitating that research and education mission in that community building, not just between engineering and Hoover, but within the School of Engineering and other parts of campus? Right, so uh, the, we have a long history of collaboration and collaboration is what has led to most of the innovations, I would say. Uh, it's woven in the fabric of Stanford for a long, long time. And I feel that this project has catalyzed new kinds of collaborations that we haven't had before. It's the objective of bringing our technology, our innovation uh, to policymakers who may not have the chance to say, learn about it in layman's terms it has been different for people in a good way. So our faculty, you'll hear from some of them, have learned how to talk to other people around the engineering school and around campus in new ways that I think are very appreciated by them. The, the ability to bring what they're working on to others who want to hear about it and want to understand it, but aren't in the lab, for example. As you know, one of the things we heard from former senior government officials on our advisory board was, you can't just produce a report. You need to have an educational campaign. One report does not a campaign make. So talk a little bit about what's next, what you see in the future, uh, and, and what excites you. Well, so I'm on the technology side of this project, and so I'm gonna turn a little bit of this back over to you. What excites me on the technology side is that we, this is a snapshot moment in time. So we picked 10 technologies, you can see the list. They're obviously uh, extremely important at this moment in time. They are moving very fast. They are 
having a big influence in working on world problems. I mentioned sustainability, for example, and human health and technology access and others. So I'm very excited that we picked these 10 and I'm very excited to see what the next 10 will be. So for me, that part of it is going to be a continued story about what is happening with these technologies, as well as what other technologies are going to roll in over time that we are going to feel are equally important to educate policymakers about. Now, in terms of delivering a report and then saying that's not a campaign, I'll turn that over a little bit to, to you, Amy, to talk about um, what we do. It was a very, we were on a Zoom call with our advisory committee who I think you were quoting there, that was very eye-opening to me. I have to be honest, I don't really know that well how Washington works, and I learned quite a few things in that call about the fact that you can't just write what I would think was an amazing paper about a topic or an amazing summary and just give it to your congressman, and they're going to sit down at night and read the whole thing and come back with questions. So I learned that we have to have a multifaceted approach if we're really going to achieve our goal, which is to bring this these um, knowledge of these technologies and this understanding to government and to policymakers. So I'll turn it over to you to talk about how we can do that most effectively and what my part is on the sort of technology side of things. Well, I think we're taking a lesson from the engineering side of campus and we're going to rapidly prototype, learn, fail, and iterate from there. Um, the first step is taking the show on the road right, to Washington. So rather than expecting Washington always to come here, we're gonna to go to Washington and do some briefings. And then the question is, what's the right way to deliver this fabulous expertise from our faculty to policymakers in a way that they can hear it and use it in a continuous fashion? So we're going to be experimenting with a, a number of new things, whether it's podcasts or Ask the Professor, uh, we're thinking about a science and policy seminar series, we're, we're not yet at the policy by tweet uh, approach to uh, explaining technology, but we're excited that we're gonna try a bunch of new things in the year to come. So I wanna end by asking you about, you know, you've had this amazing career in computer science and electrical engineering, chair of the department, dean of engineering, you see a broad array of emerging technologies. You talked a little bit about what excites you, but as you look over the horizon, what is most exhilarating to you about emerging technology and what most worries you? Sure, okay, let me start with the exhilarating. You'll all think I'm gonna say AI, that is certainly the um, topic of the day. For me, one of the things I got most excited about when I became the, the Dean of the School of Engineering is learning about the breadth of engineering as a field and how impactful areas I knew nothing about were. I'll take material science. Material science, making new nanomaterials, that's key to energy, that's key to the future of the planet. I didn't really know about that, and, and I got pretty excited when I learned about that. Another area I didn't know a lot about, biotechnology, synthetic biology, all kinds of truly amazing discoveries being made in biology and how they're being put to use to improve us, all of us, our, our human health. So I'm very excited about um, 
what's going on in computer science, what's going on in AI, but maybe most excited about the breadth of what's going on across all of the engineering fields and how each of those can have a really substantial impact on the problems that are facing the world today. Now, in terms of what I'm concerned about, certainly my biggest concern is about misuse of the technology and uh, people using it for purposes that I think most of us, everyone in this room would agree are not productive for society. I'd love to hear what you're most concerned about as well, if we have a moment. I'm most concerned about us, about our society and the division in our society. I think technology can do remarkable things, but the risks of technology are misused by a society that doesn't believe in truth, that doesn't listen, that isn't united in common values. And the values underpin everything, both domestically and, and our inspirational power in the world. So it's a, not a technological worry I have, it's a human worry that right. I have. Right, well, that makes sense. So we are, uh, just to give you a, a preview of coming attractions, we're gonna get a little taste of the breadth of uh, emerging technology in three lightning round uh, talks that we're about to hear from key players in the Stanford Emerging Technology Review. First, we're gonna hear from Professor Allison Okamura, who's gonna talk about robotics. Then we'll hear from Professor Jenan Bao, who's going to talk about material science. And then we'll hear from Dr. Herb Lin, the editor of the Emerging Tech Review, uh, who's going to talk about cross-cutting themes. But please join me in thanking Dean Jennifer Whittem. Hello, I'm Alison Okamura. I'm a professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering, and I'm pleased to have contributed to the CETER, um, the section on robotics, which was developed based on lots of interactions with students and colleagues uh, in this very interdisciplinary field across many departments at Stanford. For robotics, we have to begin by asking the question, what is a robot? Uh, for me, a robot is a human-made physical entity that has ways of sensing and acting on the world around it. This uh, technology is using some physics. So there's a nature of physicality that goes beyond just artificial intelligence in that robots have the ability to create physical effects on the worlds around them. This can make them life-saving and it can also make them dangerous. Robots today are used primarily for tasks that we call the three Ds, dirty, dull, and dangerous tasks. This includes things like manufacturing lines, which are dull, uh, things that are dangerous, like disaster assistance, and uh, other ones like military services, security, and transportation. Robots can be autonomous, that is, they can operate on their own, or they can be directly controlled by human operators. Humans really excel at working in unstructured, even chaotic environments, whereas autonomous robots, at least today, work best in very structured, controlled environments like manufacturing lines. So to give an idea of where we are and where we can go, let's look at the field of medical robotics, how robots affect human healthcare. Each year, thousands of surgical procedures are done with surgical robots. Most of them are actually robots developed right here in Silicon Valley. 
These robots that are used today are not autonomous. Rather, they're teleoperated. A surgeon sits at a console and manipulates what amounts to some fancy joysticks. And this controls a robot that has very small arms and hands that can actually be inside the patient's body to do the procedure in a much less invasive way than if the surgeon had to put their whole hands inside. And surprisingly, this doesn't just help the patient, it also helps the surgeon. Whereas the patient can have a smaller incision and benefit um, from more uh, decreased chance of infection and uh, a faster procedure, the surgeon also sits comfortably at a console that's very ergonomic rather than bending their back over the patient. So these types of technologies can help people on both sides of the equation, the providers and the receivers. And over the past decade with these types of teleoperated robots, robot designers and the medical teams have kind of learned how to work together, how to integrate these robots into the operating room and balance the physical capabilities with the robot with the intelligence of humans. And the goal of course being to optimize patient care over a wide variety of procedures. But it's interesting that if you go into even one of these robotically based um, operating rooms, we'll see that the operating room doesn't really look that different from my, how it might have looked a few decades ago before robots were introduced. But now, because there are breakthroughs in machine learning and artificial intelligence, robots can have a more transformational impact on human health and healthcare. And there's really a need for this. We have increasing human length of life and associated diseases that affect older adults. For example, in April of this year, the White House issued an executive order on increasing access to high quality care and supporting caregivers. And of course, this is in response to the current growing social and economic crisis in meeting the needs of older adults. The growing number of older adults who need assistance combined with a severe workforce shortage of people who can assist them is creating really high costs associated with elder care and uh, really contributing not only in the US but worldwide. Some recent analyses show that we expect to have around 85 billion people by 2050 who are age 65 and older. And as the ages grow even older, we're gonna have more and more needs for assistance of personal care in the home. And we just don't have the workforce to support this care. So researchers at Stanford and elsewhere are developing assistive robotics that can provide help in the home, hopefully delaying transition to say skilled nursing facilities and the such, so that people can age in place, be, live more independent lives and uh, overall improve their health. Now, a one-to-one -one person to robot ratio just isn't going to be feasible the way it's used in surgery today if robots are going to have these types of impacts. And so we're going to need to go towards more autonomy and benefit from recent developments in AI technology while also considering safety so that we, or at least Americans, are starting to be more willing to accept such technologies. So as robots increasingly enter our lives, we're going to need to balance the accessibility of robot technology with these needs. And that equation is starting to work out in the favor of robots. For example, robots need sensors in order to perceive the world around them. And the costs of things like cameras are coming way down as these component technologies get integrated into cell phones and other common platforms. Robot bodies are also now lighter and cheaper as designs are enabled by new materials, some of which I'm sure Zen and Val will talk about in a minute, um, and structures. And some of these are even soft, 
physically creating safety. But it won't always be easy. We have supply chain issues that are some of the most important near-term infrastructure challenges in robotics. The robotics field relies on integration of so many different types of foundational technologies, and this means that progress in this field is heavily reliant on global supply chains for parts such as chips and materials. Now these days, when people think about autonomous robots, they typically think about self-driving cars because this is so much in the news, whether crews in San Francisco is being banned or we even see them around our neighborhoods here in Silicon Valley. It's a robotics application that's going to affect many of our lives directly in the coming decade. But many of the autonomous procedures are going to be even more difficult uh, because there are no rules of the road for helping someone in their home in the same way as robots on the road. So we have high expectations, higher than what we have for other people. And we should, because robots are going to transform many of our lives through elimination, modification, or creation of jobs and functions. All of the challenges that come with these changes are going to have to be worth it. And when we see how robots affect our lives, we're going to have to accept them being in our physical space, understanding their safety, understanding how they will change our work. And we'll have to understand how the benefits from these robotic technologies will balance out the challenges that we face. Thank you very much. Hello, my name is uh, Jianan Bao. I'm a faculty member at uh, the Department of Chemical Engineering and also by courtesy, Material Science and Engineering and Chemistry. It's my pleasure uh, to be here and also to be part of uh, this very exciting team uh, to work on the, uh, the inaugural review. Here, I want to give you a highlight on the Material Science section. The key message is that Material Science is the platform technology underlying many of the advances uh, for other research fields. And materials are essentially everywhere from things you can see, you can touch, uh, to very, very tiny atoms uh, and molecules uh, that are million times or even smaller uh, than the diameter of human hairs. And material science really cuts across many technology areas, but then they contribute to everything from stronger and also lighter weight aircrafts to materials, the biocompatible materials that are used for medical implants to longer lasting batteries used for our electrical vehicle and also sustainable plastics. The goal of material science is really to understand how structure is going to impact the properties and functions, and also how manufacturing and the processing will impact structure and as a result, the performance. The ultimate goal for material science is to really be able to predict the best material to make on demand based on certain specification. Uh, so hopefully AI will enable us to do that someday. Therefore, broadly speaking, material science is really about understanding the synthesis, characterization of materials, the manufacturing of materials, and also computation modeling to predict materials. 
Uh, here, I want to highlight some important applications that are generated by the discovery of new materials and properties. For example, new generations of wearable electronics made of skin-like materials is enabling us to be able to continuously monitor stress level of a person or glucose level of a person and also allow wound healing with less scar formation or less inflammation. Advanced uh, manufacturing such as 3D printing is allowing the manufacturing of football helmet or bicycle helmet liners to make them safer, to protect the user, and also produce personal protection equipment during the COVID pandemic. Nanotechnology is a very active research field. It's a subfield of material science. The reason it's very interesting to a lot of researchers is because when materials are scaled down from the bulk material to tiny, tiny structures that are less than 10,000 times the diameter of human hair, their properties become dependent on the size of the structure. For example, quantum dots is the subject of Nobel Prize of Chemistry this year, was announced uh, just over a month ago. And they are basically semiconductor spheres that are a few nanometers in size. But depending on the size, the color emission is very different. If it's one nanometer, it's blue in color. If it's three nanometer, only three times difference or two nanometers difference uh, becomes red in color. Quantum dots made TV brighter and more colorful. You may have seen QD TV in the, um, uh, in the appliance store. And they also make solar cells to be more efficient and make uh, cancer detection to be more sensitive. And other applications for nanomaterials include, for example, the uh, molecular nanoassemblies allowed COVID vaccine to become stabilized and uh, be able to, uh, to get delivered uh, for human. There are two-dimensional semiconductors. These are atomically layer-thin sheets of semiconductor. They are being researched to make the next generation integrated circuits and uh, semiconductor chips to be even faster than today. Finally, there are a lot of advances being made in nanocatalysts that can be used to convert sunlight electricity into and taking uh, carbon dioxide from the environment and convert into valuable uh, chemical fuel or other chemical, useful chemicals. Going forward, it is important to better understand the environmental and health implications of nanomaterials. And AI will be a very important tool to combine with material science to generate even better and more powerful new materials. On the policy side, it is important that there's no ambiguity on what is considered fundamental research versus export controlled research to prevent unintended hindering of innovation by creating obstacles for non-US 
researchers to work in U.S. or deterring uh, international collaborations that's critically important for advancing the field. So in summary, the key takeaways are material science is foundational. AI will help material science to become even more powerful. Material science requires long-term investment in workforce development, fundamental research, and as well as infrastructure. Material science requires interdisciplinary and international collaboration. And finally, more funding support is needed to translate fundamental research to commercialization. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I'm Herb Lin. Uh, I'm the, the director of uh, CEDAR and also the, the editor. My job is to talk about what uh, we learned after looking at uh, 10 different fields, um, important fields of technology. Um, I think you would, you'd acknowledge that all 10, in, all 10 fields are important, uh, but what was surprising, uh, you know, what could be surprising, is, how, is, is understanding how they're all interconnected. Um, and that, you know, for example, advances in one field also often lead to advances uh, in others. We've had some, you know, some mentions now of, of how AI is transforming various fields and AI is impact on uh, material science uh, and semiconductor design and space -like exploration and robotics and, and, and so on. Uh, and so you might think that AI is the fundamental technology uh, that underlies everything else. Well, it's certainly one fundamental technology, no question about it, but material science is too, okay, is, is one of the things that, that we, we just heard is, you know, everything is atoms, you know, this, you know you're, all, you're all made of atoms and you're sitting on atoms right now. Um, and and uh, so um, material science will give, you know, give, gives us better batteries and, and uh, more advanced robots and better energy storage and, and, and so on, different kinds of concrete and so on. Better energy technologies give, you, give us better robots and uh, uh, spacecraft and so on. But we also sometimes see that the, the fields that are helped also return the favor. So for example, better chips, better semiconductors have enabled uh, advances in AI, okay? Material science uh, will help to uh, develop better semiconductor materials which will lead to better chips, which will, we hope will lead to, to better AI, uh, and so on. There, so there, there are these interesting feedback loops between the, 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 the technologies. So, you know, there is no one fundamental technology, most fundamental technology. Uh, technologies often build on each other. So that was one of the interesting things that came out of it. The second interesting uh, aspect was the, the what we call the democratization of uh, advanced technologies. It used to be in some many, many years ago, some era many years ago, the United States had a lot of control and leadership over uh, new technologies, government funding expertise. We were number one. Um, those technologies now are spreading globally, uh, not just uh, to um, other countries, both including allies, by the way, not, and, and partners, not just adversaries. Uh, but we, in other words, it's not just a China problem. Um, there's lots of scientific talent in uh, other in uh, other nations uh, and so on, and the expertise to implement many of these technologies is kind of diffusing downwards. Uh, in many fields like synthetic biology and robotics, what used to take a PhD uh, to do now you can do in high school labs. 
and, and uh, this is a this this kind of democratization over you know sort of horizontally and and, and vertically uh, creates a complex policy environment. Um, decentralized technology, decentralized uh, talent means there's no longer a way to get a handle on it. And, you know, in any one way, if you're going to have any influence over it at all, it's a whole of government, whole of society kind of operation rather than some one centralized uh, point of, of control. And with all of these actors, um, the policy space is a, is a whole lot more complicated. Okay. Some of the consequences of this, more actors means more policy complexity, right? It's no longer just our policy towards the Soviet Union. Uh, we have to worry about uh, how policy um, affects um, high school students now. I mean, in, in science, that, that's, that's, that's something we never had to, to, to worry about before. And with these other actors, state and non-state actors, they find ways of challenging our, our interests in ways that they didn't before. Technological advantages based on monopoly are going to not go away, but diminish, right? It used to be we were number one. We could keep it all to ourselves. We can't do that very much anymore. Um, other nations will have capabilities, and we can't exercise monopolies. Winning isn't winning anymore. That is, it used to be we could win a race, and the race would stay won. Not anymore. Okay, the, you know, leadership is going to go back and forth, and there's no such thing as resting on your laurels anymore. Um, constant competition is the name of the game now. And more diversity in, in uh, uh, bureaucracy and in, and in ethics and so on, different ways of looking at the world, different organizational structures, these have consequences. And you know, in, our, in our country, we care about operating ethically. Um, we establish bureaucracies to, to help us uh, do that. Other countries, maybe if they don't care about ethics as much, maybe they're going to work faster in this. That's an interesting policy challenge, how we're going to deal with that. And the, the other, the last thing I wanted to talk about, we have 12 of these themes. Um, the third one I want to talk about is that technology advancement we find is more than just scientific advancement. It requires grappling with economic policy and social factors in, in, in important ways. So for example, we've always heard about the breakthroughs in nuclear fusion and they have been genuine breakthroughs. We have reached break even, uh, more than break even for the first time in, in history. We've done that twice now where we got more energy out of a fusion explosion, controlled fusion explosion, uh, than was incident on the, than was present in the lasers used to compress it. Um, that's a big deal, okay? Um, but scientific feasibility that break-even is possible is not sufficient. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient, right? You need to demonstrate engineering feasibility. What that means in this context is that not only should that the scientific uh, break even be have been achieved, but all the energy used to power the lasers to go into the fusion explosion, into that little miniature fusion explosion, uh, had to be, uh, you, you had to do more better than that. And that kind of break even, engineering break even, we are any, not anywhere near. Um, so real energy production requires energy, re requires engineering feasibility as well as scientific feasibility. And even the most optimistic forecasts say, Fusion, 15 years away. Um, and even beyond that, be, be, beyond engineering feasibility, there's social feasibility, uh, you know, economic and social challenges. For example, where is the fuel going to come from? 
turns out that the fuel you need for um, uh, nuclear fusion, um, you have to produce in nuclear reactors or accelerators. Um, that's going to be hard. Are we going to produce lots of nuclear reactors to produce fusion reactors? It's going to be interesting. So the, the summary there is, is that tech advancement requires more than just scientific breakthroughs. And, and we can't just look at just the science. We have to look at the entire engineering uh, and social and economic and political uh, complex uh, surrounding uh, technology for it to succeed. And with that, um, I will turn it over to Condi and Condi Rice and uh, Mark Andresen, who will come out and join me now. Thank you. <laughs>